The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Ronnie Neff. She is director of the Food System Environmental Sustainability Program and director of research at the Center for a Livable Future. She received her Ph.D. from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and a Master's of Science from the Harvard School of Public Health. She directs the Food System Environmental Sustainability Program, where she is leading multiple projects on the issue of wasted food. She looks at farm policy in the context of public health. She analyzes public communication regarding food system environmental threats, especially climate change. And she's also the editor of a new textbook called Introduction to the U.S. Food System, Public Health, Environment, and Equity. So, Dr. Neff, without further ado, welcome. Thank you. I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you on the radio. Well, I heard you present on the Healthy Food Action webinar on sustainable dietary guidelines, and I thought this was such an important topic, and you did such a wonderful presentation that I thought we should talk about this. So let's just start out with why are we having these revised dietary guidelines with a discussion about the importance of sustainability? Great question. So the dietary guidelines are revised every five years, and they do that to update the science. And going back some 30 years ago, Kate Clancy and Joan DiGusso wrote an article where they basically said sustainability should be part of this, because if we're talking about um, how to improve our nutrition, we can't just be talking about it for today. We have to be talking about it for our children, our grandchildren's nutrition, too. So they put this out there. There's been discussion of this for many years, and for the first time this year, the advisory committee that advises the USDA on what to put in the dietary guidelines said, we're going to consider sustainability, and they created one of their subcommittees that's specifically focused on sustainability. So this is a great opportunity to work on these issues. Mm-hmm. And I don't think people really fully understand the impact that these dietary guidelines have. For example, I had a conversation with a woman not long ago who said, you know, I really want to make sure that our schools reintroduce whole milk to the kids. And I said, yeah, you know, that's going to have to come from the dietary guidelines because the dietary guidelines are really what shape all of our national feeding programs. Is that correct? That is correct. It sets the framework for what nutritional guidance is given out and what foods are available in programs that provide food. It also provides information to people giving nutrition education. So, so that it has very broad reach, not only through policy, but through communication as well. Mm-hmm. And it seems that if we are going to indeed feed these 9 billion people who are expected to habitate the planet – that we need to be thinking along sustainability lines. So let's just give us a definition of what sustainability is. And I thought during the webinar you did a really good job on this. Thank you. Well, the basic definition of sustainability is the ability to continue indefinitely. 
And I think if we think about that in terms of the environment, it's like you can't take the environment alone because environment and economics and social factors are all intertwined with each other. So they often talk about the three pillars of sustainability, environmental, economic, and social. And that's the definition of sustainability that I use. And I would just add to that that sustainability is often used to greenwash various programs. And I think that you know there's a million definitions out there So I think it's really important to kind of stick to the basics of what we really are talking about here. And also another word that's thrown around a lot is is resilience. And I think it's useful to contrast sustainability and resilience because they're not the same, although they are going to overlap a lot. And if you think of sustainability as the ability to continue, resilience is the ability to bounce back after some pressure that's put on a system. Mm -hmm. And I think with climate change, the issue of resilience is ever more important. Absolutely. With regard to sustainability, I agree that the word does seem to be co-opted, and I have so many stories about the misinterpretation or the misuse of sustainability, of course, in my own work, but I do have some concerns that we don't have a good handle on what might contribute to a sustainable food system and what might not. So I thought you gave a very good example in the webinar about the simple use of antibiotics in animal or livestock agriculture, where the industry has been using antibiotics to improve feed efficiency, so it makes the animal gain weight faster, goes to market quicker. It's assumed that it's more efficient. We can get a a cheaper cost at the register. But in the long term, using antibiotics is not sustainable. So why did you specifically include the antibiotic piece in your talk? Well, I think it's really important, and I think that it's not sustainable in two critical ways, and one is that antibiotics have been contributing to damaging the effectiveness of the antibiotics that we depend on for human health, and if we don't stop using them in animal agriculture, the crisis of antibiotic resistance is just going to get worse and worse. So that's one way, and it's like all these social environmental sustainability pieces intertwine there. The other way is that the very fact of having those antibiotics in a production system enables having a very large CAFO-style production system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's certainly something that I know the American Public Health Association has been looking at in terms of one of the largest challenges to us as our society moves forward. And I noticed that there have been other countries that have looked at sustainability in their guidelines, and It's interesting, I've looked at the ones from Brazil, and they folded in some very nice recommendations about eating whole foods and being aware of and rejecting a lot of the food marketing that comes along with heavily processed foods. And I'm just curious to know, in addition to removing antibiotics from regular or prophylactic use in the food system, what else would you want to fold into a series of dietary guidelines that had a focus on sustainability? Great question. I would note a series of issues. One at the top of the list is is probably eating a plant-based diet or reducing meat consumption. Another huge one is reducing food waste. We're wasting 31 to 40% of all the food that we produce. So if we stopped wasting that, we'd have either a lot more food available or a lot less environmental impacts from the food that we do produce. I think that the dietary guidelines from 2010 advised essentially a doubling of seafood consumption. And the seafood that we're eating tends to be large fish, which it's not sustainable to continue to eat those. And so 
recommending eating lower on the seafood chain would be a really important one. I think that it's important for dietary guidelines to communicate about the synergies between nutrition and sustainability because there's just an incredible lack of awareness of how these issues are connected. And while knowing about it is not necessarily the thing that's going to change behavior, if you don't know about it, you're certainly not going to change. Mm-hmm. One other area, I think it's really important to, you know, when we're talking about the different types of sustainability, to think also about social sustainability and to think about how the workers were treated in how that food was produced and, to, and that the dietary guidelines should also be recommending things like good treatment of workers, good treatment of the contract producers that are producing our meat, things like that. And then finally, just supporting a sustainable food system in general if they were advising people to eat foods that are locally grown, eat foods that are produced using sustainable methods. I love like how the Brazilian dietary guidelines um, place a priority on conviviality mm-hmm. um, and some of the other ones do as well. There's so many things that could be recommended, but I guess those are some of the top priorities. Yeah, it's interesting. As a dietitian, I do see the value and importance of understanding nutrient requirements. So on a clinical basis, you know, we need to know how many milligrams, say, of magnesium or calcium a person needs to be at optimal health. But I think that what we have neglected are the things that you mentioned, the idea that where we get those nutrients matters, how the food is processed, and this idea of enjoying food and eating it with others in pleasant company because, lo and behold, that may actually help digestion and absorption. I think it's just such a fascinating area of study. But let's just jump back for a moment, and I want to focus on the meat issue. Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and the Center for a Livable Future certainly was the organization or the beginning point for Meatless Mondays. And I wonder, does that really make a difference if people were to not eat meat one day a week? Absolutely. So I would say we're actually, we didn't start Meatless Mondays. We are the um, scientific advisor to the program. I see. So we, we bring together evidence that can help inform their actions. And yes, there's a lot of studies that show that eating less meat can make a very significant difference. And if you think about this, basically 30% of our greenhouse gas emissions, food-related greenhouse gas emissions in this country are coming out of red meat. So cutting that back, there's one project from the Environmental Working Group that found that if everybody in the United States skipped meat or che- meat and cheese one day a week for a year, it would be like not driving 91 billion miles. Hmm. That's an amazing number. And, you know, it forces me to think about this idea that meat is not meat and cheese is not cheese. So personally, for my own family's table, I prefer to purchase meat that's been grass-fed only. I don't want to introduce grains because I know that has a larger footprint. I also am looking for superior nutrition in meat and dairy products that come from grass-fed animals. And I wonder when I see these recommendations about eating less meat because it's better for the environment, I'm concerned that maybe we're mixing animals that are mostly or largely finished on grain versus animals that are on pasture for their entire lives. So can you talk a little bit about how those differences play in here? Yeah, and I would answer that in two ways because I think that we're mixing animals in two ways. One is that when we say eat less meat, Often people may be thinking of chicken when we say that, and we probably should eat less of all kinds of meat, but by far the biggest impact is coming out of red meat, beef. So I think that a more nuanced message in that direction would be helpful. 
But even when it comes to chicken that's produced through the industrial system, it's not necessarily environmentally sustainable at all, even if the greenhouse gas emissions are lower. And so I think that there are very substantial differences between different types of meat depending on the kinds of systems that they were produced in. Now, when it comes to red meat, actually, the greenhouse gas emissions are essentially similar between beef produced in more sustainable ways and beef produced in the industrial system. But when you get to all the other impacts, they're far lower. And in some cases, there's land that is used for pasture that wouldn't necessarily even be appropriate for other kinds of uses, like growing food that people would eat. Mm-hmm. And the manure can also be really healthy for the soil. Right. I think the thing that concerns me so much about the direction in which our animal agriculture has moved is that we've taken animals off the farm and we've housed them in concentration and confinement. And then we have the monocultures next door rather than a century ago where we had farms that had mixed, we had animals and plants together. And that seemed to be a more sustainable way of producing food. I fully agree. Well, let me just remind our listeners that we are speaking with Dr. Ronnie Neff. She is Director of the Food System Environmental Sustainability Program and Director of Research at the Center for a Livable Future. And a wonderful webinar, and I will provide a link to that, came from Healthy Food Action, where there was a discussion about the role of meat and the whole idea of dietary guidelines for sustainability, and that's what we're talking about now. Well, Dr. Neff, I know that you have spent a lot of time looking at food waste, and I think that if we're going to have a sustainable food system, we have to talk about reducing our waste. And sometimes I have this conflict where I hear all these messages about we've got to produce more, 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 but missing from that conversation is this notion of how much are we wasting and how can we reduce that waste? Yes, that is absolutely true. And and I think, you know, when the United Nations says we need to produce 70% 70% more food by 2050, that's exactly the piece. There's two pieces that are missing, and one is if we were to reduce the amount of food that we're wasting, and the other is if we were to re- reduce the amount of meat that we were producing, essentially making our food system more efficient, we could get a lot more mileage out of all the existing resources that we're putting into food production. So how much food do we waste both globally and in the United States? The global estimate from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization is about 30% of all the food that's produced. And in the United States, the estimates range from about 31 to 40%. But there's something very different going on in different areas of the world. So in lower and middle income countries, typically a lot of the waste is happening at the production and distribution level due to a lack of adequate infrastructure, roads, refrigeration, things like that. Whereas in the United States, it's really much more at the consumer level. In fact, by some estimates, it's about two-thirds of our post-harvest waste is happening at the consumer level. Mm-hmm. I liked something that you had said in one of your blog posts about the whole issue of waste and changing the way we produce and consume our food. And you said it's really not about doing more with less. It's about doing something different. So just looking at the United States, and clearly I think you're really right to bring up the point that globally food waste looks very different than it does, say, in a first world country where we seem to take for granted and overly process food. But if you were to do something different to reduce food waste, what kind of recommendations would you give consumers? Hmm. Well, first of all, I would say that there's not 
a single thing. And that's one of the tricky parts about reducing food waste is that there's a lot of different actions that need to be taken. And one of the things that's a little challenging is that a lot of the actions, they're sort of separated in time and in concept from when the waste happens. So if we check our cupboards before we go shopping, if we plan our shopping list, if we stick to that shopping list in the store, all things that we don't really necessarily associate with waste, and also plan our portion sizes before we go shopping. All those things are going to prevent waste two weeks later when something's been sitting in your refrigerator and now it's all soggy and you don't want to eat it. Similarly with cooking, planning the portion sizes, being willing to eat leftovers, which you know I eat leftovers pretty much every day for lunch and it's hard to imagine not eating them, but I know that there's a lot of people that prefer not to and, and maybe if they tried them, they would also see that it makes life a lot easier as well yeah. to, have to cook each time. But things like that, so there's all different steps, you know, and there's some excellent lists that are out there from, like, the USDA Food Waste Challenge and um, a lot of different groups. So there's two key areas that I think are really interesting. So I just completed a nationally representative survey about food waste among Americans, and two things rose to the top in terms of consumers. And one is that the number one reason that people said they were throwing food out was because of food safety concerns. And if you think about this, we don't know how much is actual food safety concerns, but we know that people are throwing out a lot of food because, for example, of date labels. And they they read a date label that says sell by or even use by, and they think that that means they have to throw it out then, when really using their senses would often be a much better gauge of what is able to be eaten. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we found in this survey was that people were saying that they only want to eat the freshest food. And I think that we in public health and nutrition have push people in that direction and and the foodies and the chefs by making it seem like only the very freshest, most beautiful food is the very best thing to eat instead of having a more broad perspective of all the different types of food that can make fabulous meals. That's really interesting. I was just talking to a farmer who does not use herbicide and pesticide sprays and her fruit isn't extremely perfect or pretty sometimes. There are spots on it. And she specifically wanted me to tell consumers, if you just accept a few blemishes on your fruits and vegetables, we would waste less. And the nutritional quality and taste would not suffer. And it would mean less toxins in our environment. So to me, that sounds like a sustainable message. Absolutely. It's a total win-win on every front. I mean, there's so much food that gets tossed that's perfectly good food. And And that's often not happening at the consumer level because when you go to the grocery store, typically you don't even see that food. It's been screened out before you get there. So that's partly an issue of changing how the retail industry views what's acceptable to consumers. Yeah. I would love to see a section on food waste folded into the sustainability guidelines. I don't know if we're going to see them. One of the things that you mentioned in your webinar that I found especially disturbing was that the Agriculture Appropriations Committee was advising the USDA not to go beyond nutrient needs in the guidelines and to really leave sustainability alone, just focus on nutrition. And those of us who have a broader view of the whole food system and public health were not as happy with that kind of recommendation as we would if sustainability issues were embraced. I don't know what we can do politically other than to perhaps let our legislators know that this is an important concept for us. Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and the reason this has taken so long to even get where we are is because this is a controversial concept, and promoting sustainability does 
upset the status quo for a lot of people that have been profiting or industries that have been profiting off of it. And particularly, I guess the meat industry would be in some ways most affected, the red meat industry. So in terms of ways to deal with this, I think one is, yeah, reaching out to legislators. I don't know if there's a specific policy or thing that can be done to overturn that statement, but I will say that it's not a legally enforceable statement. So if the USDA wants to go out and say, look, this is really important, they can still put that in the dietary guidelines. Mm-hmm. And it's definitely my hope that they will. The flip side is we're in this for the long haul, and there's the 2015 dietary guidelines, there's the 2020 dietary guidelines, and there's also many opportunities to put out dietary guidance or recommendations about what we ought to eat, not just from the federal government, but from organizations that people are engaged with or any schools, whatever, any place where you are, there's an opportunity to present these kinds of messages. Mm-hmm. I agree. Is there a website that you would like for people to go to learn more about this? Yeah, well, so I would recommend our center. We're the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health Center for a Livable Future. It's um, www.jhsph.edu slash CLF. And in addition, we have a lot of different resources, but we also have a curriculum for high school students that's free and downloadable. And even if you're not a high school student, it can be great for giving you the overview of all these issues. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned during the webinar that I thought was wonderful, you pulled it out from the new Brazilian dietary guidelines, but it was that they were encouraging people to take photos of meals that match the guidelines, right? And sharing of recipes. That was another thing that, that they advised. And, you know, I've been in this profession for several decades. So I remember years ago when I first entered, I was in the College of Home Economics. None of the colleges are called Home Economics anymore. They've all been renamed Human Environmental <laughs> Sciences and so forth. But one of the things that we did was we did promote recipes and sharing how to produce food in the home, not only to cook it, but also to preserve it and store it for the winter. And somehow those teachings became almost like, oh, you don't want to do that because that's too Betty Crocker. But as it turns Mm -hmm. out, they're very important. So I don't know if you plan on doing that on your website. You know, if the dietary guidelines aren't going to do it, maybe you can kind of do something, a a guerrilla kind of attempt to show people what good, wholesome, healthy food looks like that's also planet-friendly. That's a great idea. And I feel like there are tons of places where people can go for recipes, but I don't know of any site at least in the United States, where people could go to look for that. And in the Brazilian dietary guidelines, people all over the country sent in photos of their dinner, and the types of foods that they were eating aren't necessarily the same ones that are popular here, so I think there would be real value in having one that's U.S.-centric. Yeah, I like that idea. And I also like the idea of having simple recipes. I had read a statistic, gosh, this was years ago, showing that as women entered the workforce, They were just thinking of what to put on their table at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And it's nice to have those leftovers, I agree, but it's also nice to have an idea of how you can put a healthy meal on the table that isn't going to take hours to prepare and that is probably faster and absolutely more nutritious than driving through the drive-thru. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. And in many cases, a lot less expensive, too. Yeah, I think that there's a myth out there that to eat sustainably is going to cost more when that's really often not the case. Right. I know that you personally do a lot of gardening and composting, and you've got two children yourself. And 
something that you had written on your website I thought was really nice. It was about how your work has improved your ability to parent and feed your family and vice versa. Are your children involved in food growing, preparing, and eating? Do you see differences with your own children versus children who have not grown up with those values? You know, I think that they just based on what we serve in our house, they're getting probably a more sustainable diet than a lot of other people. But they and other things also just keep me reminded that some of this is easy and some of it isn't easy. And all of the junk foods in the world are very well formulated specifically to appeal to us and to make us really want them, and they work. And so it's a challenge, and it's part of that's the reality of of living in this world and trying to do this work. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we talk about sustainable dietary guidelines, just as Brazil did, we have to include an awareness and a recognition of the role that food marketing plays and to maybe help our children find another way or see a different way and then realize how much better that food tastes and how much better they feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a challenge, but I agree. One of the pieces that I found at your website, which I will provide that link to our listeners, was a piece that you did for Marketplace, and it was Four Steps Toward a Climate-Friendly Diet. And you had four messages, and I thought maybe we could leave our listeners with those. One we spoke about already, which was the role of just eating a little bit less meat and dairy and paying attention to the way in which the meat and dairy is produced. Waste, we talked about that and reducing waste, and you have some tips on how to do that, not falling into the trap of eating food just because it's there. Using less energy, and I think that that is something that maybe we can leave our listeners with. When you talk about using less energy in food preparation, what do you mean exactly? Well, I think, first of all, it's eating lower on the food chain and less processed food is going to be made with less energy. Then there's the idea that, for example, if you're eating some kind of highly perishable or out-of-season produce, a lot of that is going to have been shipped to you by an airplane. And if you've ever gone into one of those, like, do-it-yourself, figure-out-your-greenhouse-gas-emissions calculators, you'll find that airplanes are really trump almost everything else. And just generally speaking, I'd say also making fewer car trips to the store, maybe considering biking or walking, and just realizing that there's a lot of different types of changes that we make to get to a lower greenhouse gas emissions status. And when it comes to food, we're often talking about the greenhouse gases like methane and nitrogen, but we can't forget carbon dioxide either, and that's where our fossil energy comes in. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Neff, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, and I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a charge. Well, thank you so much, and I've really enjoyed this conversation. And if there was a single charge, it's to... Well, to really look across all these issues at the sustainability of your diet, but when it comes to meat, eating less meat and dairy is perhaps the most important thing that you can do to change the environmental profile of the foods that you eat. And eating a little bit less, like going meatless one day a week on Meatless Monday, is a really valuable step. If we need to get to the kinds of carbon emissions that we are hearing we need to get to, we need to go farther than that. And so I'm moving further and further in the direction of a plant-based diet. And starting with Meatless Monday is a great place to start and then keeping on going from there. Well, I think that's wonderful advice. And those tips will be available for our listeners at the Center for a Livable Future website, which is www.jhsph.com 
www.edu/clf, and again, I'll make that available on our website. In closing, I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We've been speaking with Dr. Ronnie Neff, Director of the Food System Environmental Sustainability Program and Director of Research at the Center for a Livable Future. 